Hello and welcome to A Truth Universally Acknowledged with me, Harriet Minter. Now, usually this is the podcast for anybody who thinks that they really want to write some women's commercial fiction and maybe they want to hear how some other authors have done it and they want to get inspired and actually you just kind of want to procrastinate for an hour and and listen rather than do the writing. But this week... I'm also procrastinating for an hour. I'm not learning, I'm just enjoying, because this week's chat is a little bit different. I have invited my very good friend, journalist, broadcaster, podcaster, book writer, all-round love, Kate Lever, to join me to have a fangirl moment, as it were. We both adore Marion Keys. She's pretty much the queen of women's commercial fiction, and... Her new book, Again Rachel, has been a bestseller in the past few months. So Kate and I thought this would be a really lovely opportunity to discuss the joy of reading. Now, if you haven't read Marion's latest book, Again Rachel, there are no spoilers, but you might learn a little bit more than just reading the back cover. And if you haven't read any other of Marion's books, well, go do that immediately. Put this down, get on with it, because her books really are very life-affirming. But if you love reading, if you love women's commercial fiction, and if you just like listening to two women who really should know better have a proper fangirl moment, then this is the episode for you. This is Kate. Hello, Kate. Hello, Harriet. First of all, for anyone who doesn't know you, tell everyone a little bit about who you are, the things you've written, and just why you love a bit of women's commercial fiction as much as I do. Yeah, of course. Um, So as you can probably tell from my voice, I'm originally an Australian, but I've been living in London uh, for about seven years, uh, where I worked for Pottermore by J.K. Rowling, which is a much less of an exciting flex than it used to be since she's revealed various opinions recently. Um, And since then, basically, I've written a couple of books, one about friendship called The Friendship Cure and one about dogs called Good Dog. And otherwise, I do other bits and pieces sort of, um, you know, across mediums and across subjects, but I like to either go, it seems very dark or very light. So yes, I'm either writing opinion pieces about Britney Spears, Harry Styles, Taylor Swift, or dogs, or I'm writing, producing and researching, you know, a groundbreaking Australian podcast on men's violence. Um, Currently, all the bases. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think Life is about light and dark, and I think I can only really do the work that feels really meaningful to me if I have a release uh, that keeps things light. Interesting. (laughs) Um, That really strikes me, actually, about one of the reasons that I sort of reached out to you and said, oh, do you want to come mm. and do this episode with me? Because I saw on Instagram that you were also reading... Marion Keyes' new book, Again, Rachel, Yeah. at the same time I was. And <sighs> the thing that I love about Marion Keyes, the reason that I kind of got so into her books many years ago, was because I think she does light mm. and dark absolutely yep. brilliantly. Do you think that that is actually something that us women and writers and writers about women... Mm-hmm appreciate 
and white. Oh, God, yes. I mean, I I am a diehard, lifelong, loyal and devoted Marion Keys fan, both as a person and as an author, because oh, yes. perhaps this is something we can cover later, but I find her to be the embodiment of delight oh, on Instagram is. and Twitter. Um but I think what she does so beautifully and what has made her, you know, an international bestseller for several decades with a huge backlist of books to get through if you're only discovering her now is her ability, yes, to deal with the darkest parts of the human experience with a deftness and a lightness and a comic touch that to me is quite unrivaled. Mm-hmm. And I think allows people to sort of melt into and think about these darknesses, you know, like depression, like addiction, like miscarriage, like suicide, in a way that feels non-threatening and in a way that feels, and I know these, you know, they're fictional characters, sure, but Marion, what Marion also does beautifully is draw on her own experiences of pain and trauma and tragedy and she works them into fictionalised characters Mm. I know they're fictional characters that she's writing about, but they are so instilled with her own pain and with the pain that mm. so many other people go through um, that it shouldn't it shouldn't matter that she doesn't exploit fictional characters, but it does and she doesn't because she writes these characters that are so real and who go through things that we all go through and it just never feels exploitative and it never feels voyeuristic and it never feels as though she is channeling or tapping into really raw experiences for her own gain or for her own profit or for like the merit or recognition of dealing with difficult topics. She does it because she wants us to go with her and with the characters that she writes through a journey of deep human flaws and danger and threat and trauma and come out the other end with redemption and self-awareness and love and it all feels like a very safe experience. It does feel like a safe experience. Also, so that is so important, actually. I think I think it was Sarah Manning who said on an earlier episode of this podcast, she said that one of the pieces of advice that she took from Marion Keyes was Marion Keyes basically said about writing. She was like, how can you put your reader through all that trauma and not give them a happy ending at mm. the end? You have to. Yeah. And I think that really goes to that point you make about safety and that because if you read a Marion Keys novel, she puts you through it. She puts oh, you she... through the ringer. And she, <laughs> she puts does. her characters through the ringer. You know, she really just um, while at the same time making you howl with laughter, which is the joy it's of it. It's a real skill. Such it's a skill. Such a skill. And you know, in the last few years when the world has changed, <laughs> I f- I felt that I was personally incapable of reading anything that didn't have a guaranteed happy ending. Yeah. Which meant that I lent very heavily into reading a lot of romantic comedies and I am currently trying to write my own. The thing about Marion Key's novels is, yeah, you know you're going to get to a happy ending. And I know that the the phrase happy ending has all sorts of uh, (laughs) connotations and also I think people sort of think, oh, yeah, like a happy ending is an easy book to read. Mm -hmm. Marion's books are never easy to read because you really go through it, as you said. But also the thing I love about Marion's happy endings and in all happy endings is they're actually a happy beginning. Yeah. Because you, you get to the end and then 
it's up to you to imagine the life these two people have together Mm. if it happens to be the happy ending where there's a romantic relationship that begins and it's it's sort of like I think we always make the mistake of thinking of marriage as a as a happy ending when really if we're thinking about it in a healthy way it's a happy beginning Um, and I feel the same about Marion's novels and I think that is a really lovely thing a really lovely thing that's really interesting about her latest novel which is again Rachel and is a sequel so Mm. um two things here for people listening first of all if you have not read Rachel's Holiday which is the first book in this not really a series series stop listening now just 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 stop listening (laughs) come back later come back later. go read that book immediately whatever you're doing go read the book immediately so Rachel's Holiday was actually my introduction to Marion Keys and is, I think, why yeah. I adore her so passionately. And again, Rachel is the follow-up, and I think it's, is it nearly 20 years later? It's 25. 25. I think, I think the plot of the novel is 20 years later. Yeah. But the, public, the publication date was 25 years. Wow. So it's 20 years later in Rachel's life, and at the end of Rachel's Holiday, she gets her happy ending, because it's a Marion mm-hmm. Keys novel, and... One of the things about Rachel's Holiday that everyone talks about is just how fantastic the hero in that book is. Like, <laughs> I love him. Luke is just, he's sex on legs, isn't he? Yeah. And um, Ridey, Ridey. He's, he's very ridey. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to use the Marion Keys language, which is another thing I love about her book is that she, I can imagine meetings with her editors yes. and her publishers and, you know, I can imagine at some point someone said, oh, you, you know, you've got to let, dial down all these Irish idiosyncratic phrases and she's gone nah because like you know Luke the, the hero that you're talking about is a ride he's, he's a riding. ride and I love that <laughs> phrase so much and I want it in my daily vernacular um, but when we start with again Rachel Luke is not there I know and it, I was <sighs> I was heartbroken yeah same in the first page <laughs> I was like <laughs> What has happened here and how dare it? But of course it's been 20 years and 20 Mm. years is a long time for any relationship and actually in today's world very few relationships make 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that audacity, I guess, with the book to take this character that she knows everyone is, you know, desperate to see again and be like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) I know. It was good. Uh, it's the classic will they, won't they thing yeah. that, you know, is compulsory in any sitcom. You know, Rachel and Ross in Friends is your classic example. But she is probably one of the only ones who's been able to do it over several decades and leave a gap <laughs> of 20 or so years and for people to still care. Like that's mm-hmm. why Luke and Rachel are such enduring characters. For us to still care, I mean, obviously 25 years ago we didn't read it when it came out. Yeah. Uh, you and I, no, but we're youthful because we're so youthful. So young. Um, <laughs> but no matter when you read it, for you to be able to still pick it up and still care about these people all that mm-hmm. time later is just proof of the type of durability uh, that her characters have and the compassion that lasts on on our part. Her compassion with the characters, our compassion with the characters, mm-hmm. and eventually the compassion they have for themselves. It's a powerful thing. Should we have a little fangirl moment about again, Rachel? Because I was worried. I'm not going <laughs> to like it. I was really worried because I would say that Rachel's Holiday is probably my favourite book ever. Mm. I, I have read that book. I read it at least once a year. Yeah, I so think that's I, wise. I was worried that I was not going to love again, Rachel, as much. 
And I really did. How did you find it? Well, do you know what? I was more worried about the concept of a sequel because in my mm. opinion, the only successful sequel of all time is Paddington 2, the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> otherwise, I tend to think people should leave well alone and leave people wanting more. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that applies to books and TV shows and all sorts. However... I heartily endorse. I heartily endorse <laughs> Marion's decision to go back there and to try a sequel. Um, and I believe, judging from her social media, you know, she had moments of great self doubt mm-hmm. and worry herself that she was going to let down her legions of Rachel fans. But instead, I think what she's done is, if it's even possible, created a book. I, I hesitate to say better because, as you say, Rachel's Holiday is just a timeless classic, but it's as good and it adds to the story and it genuinely is like a delightful experience to just go back into her life all those years later. And I just can't think of any other book ever that I'd want to do that and, and any other author where I really, really, really trust that she'd do a good job and she did and you're right I was relieved too do you know what I've actually just given myself goosebumps thank you I mean the thing that I really enjoyed about the book was actually that its capacity to surprise me and Mm. to trick me and this yes. is one of the things that oh, <laughs> I know, right? Yes. One of the things that I, and we're being very careful to do this without spoilers and maybe we exactly. should just say, yes. go read the book, but we'll try. Um, one of the things that I loved about Rachel's Holiday was that I think it's a really beautiful example of the trope of the unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for those of you, again, who haven't read Rachel's Holiday, Rachel is a drug addict, Yes, she would say that. Yes, she's a so drug her addict. holiday is not your her sort holidays. of. It's not a holiday. Lying by the pool. No, kind she of ends, up, ends up in rehab. And what I found really clever about the book is if you read the first page of the book, it's Rachel explaining that she's about to be sent to rehab, but it is all a big mistake. And the whole thing has just got, it's just a very silly thing that's got out of hand and there's really no need for it. And if it wasn't for the fact that she thinks that she's going to get off with a pop star and, you know, have a nice time by the pool, she wouldn't be going. The whole thing has been blown out of proportion. And you believe her, right? Mm. You believe her because she's a very convincing character. And what transpires over the book is her ability to lie to herself and to the reader. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what I loved about, again, Rachel was that we sort of perhaps at the end of Rachel's holiday had thought that that was a trait that she'd left behind, that that's not who she is now. And actually what happens in again, Rachel, is we see that trait, maybe not as deeply, but being replayed again. And I thought yeah. that was very clever. Oh, so clever. She got us again. I know. I couldn't believe it. I was like, what? (laughs) We shouldn't elaborate too much on that. And I don't think it's a spoiler because if anything, I, you know, I would sign up to be tricked by Marion Keyes. But you're right. It's so clever. And do you know, I've read a lot of women's fiction Mm. and a lot of books where it goes, you know, deep into a woman's experience of something and there also happens to be a sexy man who's waiting to get together mm-hmm. with her because it's a terrific genre. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed, especially since I've wanted to start writing one of my own, I've noticed that there are some times where I feel really uncomfortable with that kind of journey where mm. there is some foreshadowing that, or 
I don't, I just like Marion admits on her YouTube series, there are a lot of like literature words that I don't know, but she, <laughs> she, there are some books that I have read and I don't like to name them because I only ever like to talk about publicly about liking books, but there are some books where authors ask you to guess at the trauma that has happened in a character's life. Mm. And the big reveal that you're working towards by continuing to read all the chapters is going to be something hideous that they've been through that explains their actions and gives context to the way they behave. And all of that is fine if you do it skillfully and Mm -hmm. with empathy and with grace. But I find that where a lot of books fall down... And well, where I personally feel uncomfortable is where it feels like you're guessing. Like, oh, what terrible, is it rape? Mm. Is it sexual harassment of a less serious nature? Could it be childhood abuse? And you're sort of like, I just feel like it's a sort of game show mentality of like, what has this character been through? Which I never felt, even when we got tricked by Rachel the narrator, (laughs) I never felt that I was um, waiting for a big sort of gaudy reveal of what she'd been through or what had happened Mm. or if I was it was with sensitivity and warmth and just a desire to understand why this character is the way she is yeah I really hear that because that's how I felt about it as well which was that real thing of knowing that sort of knowing that obviously something bad happened then you kind of work out what the bad thing is and but feeling immense empathy for her and I think that that is I think that is a real skill to be able to do with your characters and I think is one of the charms of Marion Keys is mm-hmm. that she writes such beautifully nuanced and understood characters that they have light and shade, as we talked about at the beginning, mm-hmm. they have light and shade and we have the ability to empathise with them because she makes us like them for a start. Mm, you know, she yeah. shows us the bits of them that are fun and quirky and interesting and makes us want to be friends with them. And so by the time we get to the bits that are perhaps more unlikable at that point, we come, well, I'm in with you now. Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, <laughs> uh, exactly. you're my friend and I love you, so it's okay. Exactly. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that Marion gives us as readers is and and her characters is that she allows them to be total messes you know Mm, she leans into their flaws and she writes fallible characters so well because I mean we all are flawed but I feel like well in your sort of heyday of romantic comedy films and stuff back in the 90s and early 2000s and and certainly in various other kind of really deep romance books and when I say deep I mean deep into the wormhole of the genre rather than deep (laughs) um there is a tendency to kind of gloss over a female character and make them you know like the worst thing a lot of those characters in rom-coms did in the 90s was like be a bit clumsy and and it was sexy clumsy clumsy because they were hot women who fell over a table at breakfast or spilt orange juice or whatever (laughs) and that just like I didn't sit well with me because if I'm clumsy you know, well, you know, I broke my wrist earlier this year. If I'm yes. clumsy, there are proper consequences and I promise you it's not sexy. So, <laughs> which is a bit of a segue, but goes to my point that Marion allows her characters to be really flawed mm-hmm. and to make decisions where we're like, oh, no, babe, don't do that. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Put uh, it down. Mm, mm, no, 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 don't <laughs> do that. But it doesn't get to the stage where you are screaming at the book like, no, you idiot, don't do that, because you don't want this person 
in the book to make bad decisions, but you also understand why they are making yes. those bad decisions. You wonder yourself whether you would also make those decisions. And then you find yourself kind of staring out a window thinking about the very nature of what makes people make the decisions they make. It's not always, while it is very funny, it's not always played for humour. You're sort of laughing with the character rather than at the character. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there's um, that piece about, you know, why do they make the decisions they make? I feel when I read a Marion Keys book and about this safety point you made earlier, I feel like she knows. So even if mm-hmm. I don't know, she absolutely knows why that character has made the decision it's made. Yes. Even if it's not in the book. Even if it's something that has happened in that character's backstory that Marion has crafted and she knows exactly it, you know, when they were 12, this thing happened and that's led to them having a lifelong phobia of things that are blue and so she would never buy a blue coat so she bought a pink one. You know, whatever it is, she knows and so mm-hmm. therefore none of the decisions made feel either random or forced for the sake of plot. Mm. You know, sometimes yes. when you're reading a book and people do things and you're like, well... Why have we decided to take a random spontaneous trip to Bolivia in the winter? Yeah. <laughs> and it's for the sake of the plot. And that's yeah. never the case with Marion. It feels like the plot flows out of her characters, not the yes. characters for the plot. And I know there is a, there's a lot of discussion about this. I mean, I try to be honest with you to mm-hmm. avoid, you know, masterclasses on writing fiction and... Oh, I love them. I sign up for one at least once a week. Do you? Oh, I just, I get way over, I get too overwhelmed. I've got to trick myself into writing a novel. I currently am, you know, 10,000 words into a first draft on my phone in Google Docs on the app because I can't even sit at the laptop and face my novel in a Word document head on. In those masterclasses, which you will know if you sign up for one once a week, or in in those sort of, you know, endless YouTube videos about how to write a novel and I'm sure TikTok, because um, everything's making its way onto TikTok. There's a lot of chatter about whether a book is about character or plot mm-hmm. and which is better, et cetera, et cetera. The thing about, I, I mean, obviously Marion Keys is character-driven. Yeah. The thing about her uh, her books is you almost, even though heaps of things happen to There's her There's a friends, lot, yeah. You almost don't, I don't know if this is just me, and obviously I'm a character-driven novel fan, but I almost don't notice the plot happening because, as you say, there's nothing in there that's put there specifically to drive the plot forward. And also she takes such a macro lens approach. I'm Mm -hmm. saying macro lens just because I know that that is the setting setting on a phone that my boyfriend uses to photograph leaves. Uh, But she, I feel that we get a real close-up of characters Mm -hmm. and you're so busy in the moment with the character going through what they're thinking and what they're remembering and what they're projecting about their future that I sort of don't even notice. But, you know, by the end of the book, I'm like, oh, yeah, a lot happened actually. But I'm so – it's so character-driven rather than putting in any – I would never think of a plot device in Marion's books because it's almost like what happens to the characters is so natural and, as you say, so fully formed even outside of the context of the pages. It just feels like, oh, yeah, I'm just going through all of this stuff with the character but she hasn't forced anything. Well, it's like life, isn't it? You know, it's like if you get to the end of the week and somebody says to you, how was your week? You go, oh, it was really busy. 
And then you try and think about what it was that was really busy and you can't actually remember anything, but you know that it has been really busy. (laughs) And that's not to say that you can't remember what happens in a Marion Keys novel because that's not true, but that actually that is life. Like life is Mm. filled with stuff happening. It's filled with stuff happening, but it's the day-to-day of it and being able to capture that day-to-day experience. And I think in, again, Rachel, there is... There's a family party being created. And oh. so there's like this, this sort of subplot throughout yes. the book about the creation of the family party. Mama and Walsh's, for Mama I Walsh's, think like 80th, 80th birthday, maybe? I think. Yeah. And the creation of the party and all the silly little things that go with it. So oh. you will be in the middle of a, you know, bit of the story about Rachel's job as a drug addict. And then she gets a text message being like, well, have you picked up the balloons and have you organized the canapes? <laughs> and because that's how life goes. Well, yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you brought up the Walsh family because oh, gone, aren't they so good? They're all so good. I mean, if someone hasn't read Rachel's Holiday, go and do no. that. Yeah. But also while you're at it, uh, go and read the other Walsh family books because basically each sister gets their own book and then the other sisters who you've just read about in a different book pop up in in little cameos and you get to find out how they're going within the universe of the main sister in that book and I, it feels like a little personal joke with Marion Keys when yeah. someone pops up I'm like oh I remember and from this book. Also, the thing I love about it is if you've read all the books, you know secrets about the sisters that some yes. of the sisters don't know about the sisters. <laughs> I know. So you're I really know. in the joke. <gasps> I know. And it's also, so I mean, Harriet, do you have a sister? I do have a sister, yes. Yeah. I've got a younger sister. And she has I a whole also... life I know nothing about. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also have a younger sister and she's one of my favourite people in the world and... I mean, she lives in Sydney and I live in London, but we will exchange voice notes where it's basically like tiny little podcasts specifically about our family dynamics because no one else is qualified in the world to talk about the weird little things our parents say or how it all operates in our family. And I love that about the Walshes um, across all the Walsh books is that Marion Keys just captures that beautiful and sometimes absolutely chaotic relationship that happens between sisters and I just I just love that and I love the um family ganging up so I really enjoy the kind of (laughs) the little partnerships that form around certain issues so I only have one sister but my mum is one of four sisters oh my god wow uh, comes from a big Irish family and her mum was one of four sisters and it, like for generations <sighs> wow. and so depending upon essentially who was arguing with who at any given time different factions would form yeah. in the family <laughs> and you, so I really enjoy seeing that in the Walsh books because my again my mum's family are all Irish so it's similar and it's that decision that actually on this issue, Rachel is definitely siding with Helen because Helen has yeah. the better access to the better makeup. So she's going with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Anna, if you want to get any sort of like you spiritual woo woo. Or yes, if you want the freebies at that stage in her life. But if you want like the sort of more spiritual, if you want good girl advice, you go to Maggie. Yeah. Um, if you want the good clothes, you go to Claire. Yes. And yes, and also I love... Because if you follow Marion Keys as Marion Keys in her real life on social media, you know that she loves makeup. Oh, she loves yes. beautiful clothes. She loves leaning into the sort of the real like trappings of being feminine. Um, and she's absolutely shameless about it. And I mean that with great, great love mm. because I think we've been taught to feel ashamed of yep. being into 
makeup and here's Marion, bless her heart, doing an Instagram story where she's got one half of her face in one foundation <laughs> and the other half uh, in a different foundation and asking her followers to vote on which one makes her face look glowier. And I just love that her characters and Marion are so like into being, you know, we know they're intelligent, we know they're talented, yeah. we know they're whatever else, fully formed people, but they're also into makeup and clothes and shoes and, you know, Rachel is into buying way too many sneakers, which I yeah. love. And I just feel like it's a relief to see that, that, you know, not every woman has that at all. I'm not saying that, but it is a relief if you are into any of those things to see a character be into them and be like, yep, I know exactly what it's like to go online and buy even buy something that you know is ill-advised and does not belong in your wardrobe and probably won't suit you. But the high and the dopamine and the excitement (laughs) and also getting to choose which version of yourself you're going to be when you buy this particular jumpsuit, you know, she gets it and she feeds it into her characters in different ways. I love it. What I really love about that, and I'm going to say something that sounds like an insult and is in fact the highest compliment I can give, is how (laughs) essentially middle brow. (laughs) <laughs> Marion yeah. Keyes' characters are. Yes, yes. Do you know yes, what I mean? Yes. Like they are so. Oh yeah, I do. They never try to be anything clever. They never try to be anything kind of, um, you know, mystical or magical or pointed or different. They are as middle of the road as ninety nine point nine percent of us are, and they've got quirks and uniqueness and intricacies, but fundamentally. They care about the pretty basic stuff that most of us care about on a pretty basic level. (laughs) Which probably leads very well into the whole point of women's fiction to me. Yeah. Is as a genre, because it is written by women and Mm -hmm. very often for women, and because we have centuries worth of history of people dismissing the things we like and calling us hysterical and being the emotional Uh, Gender and all of that sort of stuff. And so women's fiction is often, you know, there was that big hullabaloo about romance novels not appearing on the best books of the year lists and all that sort of stuff. It's really uh, often underestimated as a genre, underestimated being a a generous choice of words. Yeah, belittled. Yeah, belittled. Yes, exactly. And that's like the beauty of the whole genre, I find, is because, I mean, I if I ever try to read a quote-unquote literary novel mm. or one that plays with form or, you know, doesn't put <laughs> sentences that, that you... Oh, I can't. I have... I Yeah. I mean, I read... Do you know, you know the journalist Marisa Bate, who I love, she yes. wrote in her newsletter a couple of weeks ago that she was reading a very hyped-up book that she despised and her boyfriend told her to throw it in the Seine because she was in <laughs> Paris. And I, I... Firstly, I don't know what the book is and I'm desperate to know and she hasn't replied to my email saying, please tell me. Uh, but... I have thrown books that I've been told to read across my room in frustration because I find that anyone that tries to be too highbrow mm. um, and and almost f- considers themselves sort of above clarity, whereas I think as, a, as an author it's your number one job to be clear and yeah. approachable and understandable. And I think I'm also, by the way, not above the real lowbrow stuff. Oh, oh I mean... But the I art. I grew up in Mills and Boone, so I can't comment in any way, shape, or form. I mean, yeah. I literally just finished writing, uh, reading a YA book, and I'm not saying it's lowbrow, but I am saying that it was about two members of the world's biggest boy band who are secretly in love. So you know, 
Um, but as as someone who has been a One Direction fan, you know, roughly a decade older than most other One Direction fans for many years, I'm very familiar with having my passions and tastes in music dismissed. Mm. And yeah, I feel like there are some people who behave the same way about women's fiction. Well, um, I think it's, which is a great shame because there is, are depths. It, oh, this is the thing, right? It is a great shame because. Actually, one of the things that I love about women's fiction is that women's fiction allowed me to see myself in mm, fiction. Yep. Um, you know, I was a very early reader. I was very ill as a child, so I was a lot of time in hospital. Me too. Oh, my God. I think it develops so much readers. Reading time. Yeah. Develops <laughs> readers. It's in the days before you had TV in the hospital and all that sort of thing. You couldn't watch anything. So you just had to read. And I read what was probably considered quite a lot of literary fiction that was too old for me, too mm-hmm, young. Mm-hmm. And I loved it, and I loved some of the characters in it, and I loved some of the women, but I never saw myself, right? Mm. I never saw myself. And when I started reading women's commercial fiction and laughing at the characters or laughing at the <laughs> characters and seeing them in the same positions that I found myself in and seeing them feeling the same things that I felt about myself, it helped me to really understand who I was in the world it helped me Mm. to kind of find my shape as it were um yeah and that is not something we can underestimate because the reality is that women haven't been pictured in culture Mm. until really the last 50 years exactly and I you know I think this needs to happen even more than it's currently happening but I think Mm. it's a relief also to be starting to read uh more diverse versions yeah. of what it is to be a woman, you know, yep. because the kind of journey that women's fiction has been through has sort yep. of obviously for many reasons mirrored the kind of journey that women's value in society has as well. Yeah. And that always seems to mean that first we hear all the white women's stories mm-hmm. and all the straight women's stories. And I think it's so important and such a huge relief that more women uh, and people who fall in those, you know, minority categories, for want of a better word, are able to have that beautiful experience that you just described where you see parts of yourself reflected mm. back to you. Because why else do we read novels? Yeah. You know, why else do we read books? And, you know, I I do wish that more men read mm. women's fiction because I feel like it would uh, benefit everyone if men took a little time to think about and understand the experience of people outside their own sort of very Gender. powerful category. Yeah. Yes. And also mm. there's um, there's something I think in, within this as well which is about snobbery, right? Mm, and yeah. it's very easy for us to be snobby about things we haven't experienced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I find a lot of snobbery when I talk to people specifically, when I talk to men about women's fiction and I'm like actually I know what you like I know what you're reading I know what you enjoy if you sat down and read this you would enjoy it yeah you'd have a great time with it it's a good book do you know Um, what I had an interesting conversation with my dad when I told him that my next project was going to be a romantic comedy just to defend him before I continue (laughs) um he does have a stack of both my non-fiction books that he gives to almost everyone he interacts with that's so good dad sort of but now he has to confirm that the person really legitimately likes dogs before they get a copy of my dog book (laughs) he's you know he's my the one one man publicity team back in Australia and I adore him for that but when I said I was going to write a rom-com he 
basically said some stuff to me that was quite hurtful because he essentially said, oh, but I, you know, I think you're, are you sure? Because I think your next book should be really extraordinary. You know, like basically it should be good and therefore I don't reckon you should write a rom-com. And I was upset. I was upset enough to sort of get off the phone call and have a little cry. And then the next day, because I call both my parents every morning because I'm a model daughter. Bless you. Um, And also I miss them and I have to find a way to make up for the 15,000 kilometres between us. Uh, The next day I said to him, you know what, Dad? This book is not for you. If, If I wanted to write a book for you, I would write a book about the Third Reich. You know, like, or atheism, both of which, you know, I've studied in my time as well, whatever, but that is your thing. You have an endless, you know, desire to read about Hitler and the absence of God, and that is fine, (laughs) but there is nothing less valid or interesting or extraordinary about the human condition and our desire and right to be loved and loved in the way that we should be loved. Hell yeah. And so there, say hello to my stepmother and good day. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say, I have to love how Aussie you went when you were telling your dad. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It was so good. I was like in the room with you. Um, But I agree there is like, God, Writing about desire and the human condition and human wants and fallibilities and mm. failings and joys, that's what's made great literature for thousands right. of years. Also, as um, many of my guests have liked to point out, it's what's made um, profitable literature for many thousands oh, yeah. of years. So, you know, there's I know, something I know. to be said I, for it. I think I read something once. I mean, when I say read something, that is very much a euphemism for sore on TikTok or sore on Twitter. But I'm pretty sure I saw someone say that the difference between uh, literary and commercial fiction is that one wins awards and one is the stuff that people actually read. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, there seems to be a lot of uh, merit and applause attached to certain sorts of writing. Whereas actually, when you get down to it, most of us want to read about the stuff that really, really matters to us in an accessible, moving, preferably funny way. And that's exactly like that. So so of course it makes money. Of course it makes money. And, you know, if if I had to pick between an award and making some money from my novel, I know which one I would pick. Yeah. Cash every day. Um, (laughs) Let me ask you about this then. How is it Mm. going? Why did you decide to do it? What's uh, what can you tell us about it? About my book? Yeah. Um, Tell me about the book. Yeah. Do you know what? Do you know what? I actually so I have an agent for my nonfiction books and for any Mm -hmm. other sort of corporate more broadcast work than I do. Um, but in my agency, North Bank Talent, they have a nonfiction and a fiction agent. Yeah. And so I tweeted about watching Marion Key's YouTube videos about mm. writing a novel during lockdown, which, by the way, she was very generous. So generous. Yeah. And the fiction agent, who I know for various reasons but haven't worked with because I haven't published a novel yet, got in touch with me and said, oh, I saw your tweet about watching Marianne Key's YouTube series about writing a novel. Are you writing a novel? And I was like, well, I am now. <laughs> yes, now that you've shown interest in it. Yes, uh, yes, ha- yes, I am, Hannah. <laughs> uh, so I, I, that sort of kick-started me into doing it and, and, you know, various other work and also fear and self-doubt uh, and, you know, breaking yeah. one of my hands, uh, my right hand, my writing hand, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff has got in the way. But basically, yes, it is a rom-com, but hopefully with some depth. There are like some eerie and confusing similarities between the protagonist and me, but let me say um, 
it's just not happens. me yeah. uh, but you know write what you know etc so it is about a girl who moves from Sydney to London um, but the reason she moves is potentially to do with having an ill-fated affair with uh, a soap opera star back oh, in Sydney great. because I basically wanted it to be a kind of anti-Notting Hill in the sense <laughs> that it was a warning a cautionary tale about celebrity because I wouldn't wish mega fame on my worst enemy mm. um, because I think, I mean, my my mom and grandma were soap opera stars in Australia in the 80s. Were um, they? And so, yeah. And so I sort of think about Which that quite a lot. Which soap operas? Um, they were sort of the predecessors to Home and Away and Neighbours. It was Amazing. called Young, Young Doctors and Sons and Daughters. I recently got the first season of Young Doctors on um, – DVD, and oh, let wow. me tell you, it will take the rest of my life to get through all the episodes, but apparently my grandmother's character, um, my grandma Lynn Taylor, who is no longer with us, apparently my grandmother's character gets engaged nine times and is and causes a, um, a plane accident. Amazing, as you <laughs> but do. I, yeah, so, so basically uh, the, the book that I'm writing is about belonging. Um, it's about the difference between mm. biological family and the family you can choose and it's about uh, the dangers of getting involved with a celebrity and, in fact, the advantages of a more private and quiet love. Have you ever been involved with a celebrity? No. No. Which is a, a question I imagine I will be asked when heaps of the the details about this character match mine and then I go and make her have it have a have an affair with someone who sounds suspiciously like Chris Hemsworth. No, I have not. <laughs> I have I have been involved with with uh, some people who would like to have been a celebrity and there was a very electrifying moment in a bar in Sydney in sort of the like late 2000 before sometime around 2010 or something, where I held an extended and quite erotic eye contact moment with Adam Garcia, who was in Coyote Ugly. Wow, babe. Um, I mean, that is a... That's a hot early 2000s reference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in a in a long-term relationship. <laughs> I, I can't tell you for sure he was definitely looking at me, but I remember it and that's as involved as I've sure ever been as a celebrity. I'm sure <laughs> um, well, I think it's going to be great and I can't wait. Thank you. Um, I've just got to write it now. And that's that's the secret. There is no secret. Marion talks about this as well. You know, I think a lot of people speak about writing a novel as if it's some sort of supernatural act where you're plucking ideas from the sky or sitting here waiting for the perfect fully formed idea to arrive to you. But you can't, you've just, and I know this from having written two nonfiction books, the only way to write a book is to write it. No one else, it's not going to happen otherwise, which I know because I haven't worked on it and it didn't get any more written than it was last time I worked on it. It's so weird that. (laughs) Why does that not happen? Why do you not go away and suddenly come back to 5,000 words? It's like an extremely mundane, very frustrating, <laughs> slow, usually process where it is entirely down to you and you just got to keep keep going. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it, my love. And Thank you, my I love. look forward, very much forward. None of that makes any sense. I very much look forward to talking to you about it when it's a real life book. I can't oh, wait. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think we're going to end just with a little bit of 
praise and adoration for Marion Keys about whom this episode is about mm. and her wonderful series as you mentioned on YouTube uh, I think it was on her Instagram as well go and check yes it was um where she gives writing advice and mm. she's I think there's four or five episodes and she sets you a task at the end of each episode and when she did it I thought it was the most beautiful and generous thing to do because oh, so generous. I mean, she could be charging tens of thousands of pounds for a writing and other, class. other some of her peers do, do charge a lot of money for yeah. that sort of insight. And um, it's yeah. so good. Everything mm. she talks about, every piece of information she gives you is so useful. So do go check it out. But it also makes me think about the thing that I have loved about this series. And I don't know what your experience from this is, Kate, but the generosity of female writers oh god yes yeah oh yeah it's, I mean I, I almost lost my words it's yes. a ridiculously supportive community and coming from journalism which is still you know if you make can the right be. friends it can yes. be really supportive but it can also be quite bitchy um mm. there's something so open and warm and lovely about female oh, writers yeah and you know what there, there's something beautiful between writer and writer but mm. there should also be I think when you have loved something that someone has created something beautiful between reader and writer yeah. and since becoming you know a published author um, and receiving countless Instagram messages where people have shown me pictures of their dog or told me tragic stories that they've been through <laughs> with regards to either friendship or losing a dog I really appreciate when someone likes something and tells that person. Yeah. And I have made a point of doing that, um, particularly in the last couple of years, where if I love a woman's novel, I find a way to tell her. And sometimes that's tweeting publicly. Sometimes it's like actually just writing an email or finding a way to direct message and just saying, do you know what? This affected me. I loved it. Yeah. Because I just don't think there's anyone on the planet really who doesn't deserve to hear that and also who isn't bolstered by hearing it right yeah. so even if you think that person is the most successful person you've ever met and they mm -hmm. don't need to hear it and they're full of confidence and joie de vivre and bouncing through life you might hit them on a day when they're not feeling like that and exactly. actually you send them the reminder that it's worth carrying on oh so. my god exactly and you know marianne case the woman of the hour the one we're speaking yeah. about today she said she was crippled with self-doubt writing yeah. again rachel um, so, you know, send some love her way as we are now for almost an hour. Oh, um, we everyone her. deserves to, to, to have that adoration. And, and also, by the way, writing a book is a very lonely pursuit. It's just you and your <laughs> phone or your laptop or your notepad or whatever. So once it's out in the world, if there's just eerie silence, it's crushing. Whereas mm. if you hear from the people who matter to you, but also hear from total strangers to just say, this meant something to me, thanks for putting it into the world, it can make the whole thing feel worthwhile. Kate, I love that. And I think that is a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for fangirling as hard as I did about Marion Keys. It makes me so happy. It's my favourite conversation this week. And Kate's brilliant books are out there. You can go find Kate where? Where can they find you? Instagram? Yeah, across all socials. To be honest, I'm even on TikTok, even though I'm, 
you know, an elder on TikTok. But yeah, katelever.com or otherwise Kate I Lever, because my middle name is Imogen, so I chuck a little I in there, <laughs> which seems to confuse people, but I'm on all the socials. And also on all the socials with Birch, your very cute dog. So this oh, bonus yeah. dog content. I mean, I try and limit my social media time and a lot of my output is now about Harry Styles, Britney Spears and Bert, the greatest dog in the world. Kate Medellin, thank you so much. I've loved talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So that was the lovely Kate Lever talking to me all about our love for Marion Keys, what it's like to actually write a book and, well, just being a good old fangirl. If you've enjoyed this week's episode and you haven't listened to the ones before it, please do go back. There are two seasons worth of brilliant female writers talking about their craft, how they get a book out and what it means to be a woman in writing. Go have a listen to all of them. I'm going to take a little break for a few weeks while I round up some more authors to talk to, but I will be back. And in the meantime, if you want to connect, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, all the socials at Harriet Minter. And please do subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to them. That way you'll know when the next episode drops. Bye.